Well, Father, we come before you, and we are eagerly awaiting what you have for us through this message. Father, as we talk about a a sin that's so common to many of us and that can be so dominating, I pray that you will help us to see it for what it is. I pray that, Jesus, your teaching will be clear, that all of us will be uh, well aware of the battle before us and have a deep desire to fight it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you have noticed something different about your youngest child. They have been running continual fevers. Seems like every other night they have a bloody nose, and when you feel their neck, there's some swollen lumps. So you do the responsible thing, and you type in those symptoms into Google, And Dr. Google suggests that your child may have leukemia. How do you respond? You've been dating someone for about six months. You're pretty sure that this is the one. However, you start to fight uh, a little bit more. She seems a little bit cold and, and distant You can't help but think about the lyrics of you've lost that loving feeling and you're wondering what's going on. And then you get the text, we need to talk, right? What goes through your your mind? You remember the days a few years ago when inflation was low, the government seemed to be just handing out money, but now those days are gone. You have less money, and the money that you have is worth less. And then last week, your pastor turns around and preaches on giving, right? How do you respond? Well, last week in Luke 12, 15, we talked about this passage in Luke 12, 15. Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is a word to people who want to hoard, uh, who want to keep, who want to guard the nest egg. And, and there is a temptation to say that that belongs to me, it is mine, right? That's covetousness. You want what's yours, you want to keep what's yours, you don't want to share it with anyone. And then he goes on to talk about the temptation of the rich, which is to build bigger barns and to place our faith in the abundance instead of the Lord himself. And that is one element to the biblical temptation to covetousness, especially with those who do have. Now, one of the key passages in Scripture that that talk about a biblical view of money is found in Proverbs 38 through 9, as I mentioned last week, where the author says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Right? That's the temptation of the rich. I've got all I need. Heaven is here on earth. When you get rich, the temptation is to say, who is the Lord? But that's not the only people tempted, is it? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. There's a temptation that when you don't have enough, that you're willing to sin to get more. Or maybe you don't have the opportunity, but you might have the desire. And so here Jesus is teaching on anxiety, and he's teaching it to kind of the rest of the populace, right? This was a society where you lived from harvest to harvest. If you're a fisherman, you live from catch to catch. 
every day you truly needed your daily bread because if your daily bread did not come, then what would happen? And so Jesus, he teaches on this temptation to covet. He calls on his disciples to lay up treasure in heaven. And what would be the instinctive pushback on that? Well, if I obey this command, how do I know if I'll have my daily bread? And to these people, he says this, starting Luke 12, 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, for they neither have storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the context of inviting people to discipleship, a discipleship that won't only cost you your life, but could cost you your money, there is a latent sin a disposition in in all of us, in all of you, in me, that can cause us to resist generosity. And that's anxiety. Now, anxiety is defined as a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Essentially, anxiety is fear of future suffering. It anticipates. And when you are are anxious, it shows itself in many ways. It manifests itself in, in different sins, and it impacts different relationships. John Piper writes, think for a moment how many different sinful actions and attitudes come from anxiety. Anxiety about finances can give rise to coveting and greed and hoarding and stealing. Anxiety about succeeding at some task can make you irritable, abrupt, and surly. Anxiety about relationships can make you withdrawn and indifferent and uncaring about other people. Anxiety about how someone will respond to you can make you cover over the truth and lie about things. This kind of anxiety destroys faith. 
Now, I do want to qualify this. Not all feelings of anxiety are necessarily sinful. Uh, There is a a biblical category for godly concern. For instance, Philippians 2.20. Paul commends Epaphroditus by saying, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned, there's a word, for your welfare. Paul, in rehearsing his sufferings, says in 2 Corinthians 11.28, And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Right? This is a category I call godly concern, where you have this heightened awareness, this stress that you walk into, the sharpening of senses. You are watchful, on guard, vigilant, concerned, you could even say maybe anxious. If you are in Vietnam, the year is 1969, you are leading your platoon through a rice paddy, you are going to have concern, agreed? One twig snaps, boom, you're right on it. If you take your kids to the pool, right, you should have some concern. Wait, they're splashing around, you're counting kids at all times, right? You know, there is a place for that kind of concern. Just like there is a place for for anger, as long as it's righteous indignation, right? When God is blaspheme when he's profane when something terrible happens there is a sense of holy anger that should be expressed but just like the bible says don't let the sun go down in your anger i would say don't let the sun go down on your concern that concern that the soldier has in the rice paddy needs to stay behind him when he comes back from vietnam That concern about kids in the pool should be left at the pool when the kids are dried off, safe, and home, and tucked in bed. Otherwise, anxiety escapes containment, right? And it can dominate and it can consume you. One author says, anxiety is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Isn't that a great quote? When anxiety begins to take root, when it's unaddressed, when it escapes containment, just like when a person's perpetually angry, we we see the destruction of that, right? In the same way, when somebody's perpetually anxious and they tell themselves, if I'm not anxious, I don't really care, that impacts their soul. Now, anxiety is at pandemic levels right now, right? There's a Uh, there is anxiety to go around. We'll talk more about that later. And and I think it's very easy for us to say, that's just the way I was made. Or perhaps it's a disease. Or perhaps what I feel right now uh, is always godly concern is never the other kind. If you do that, you will never change. And your walk with God will suffer. Your relationships with others, I would contend, will will suffer as well. You see, ultimately, there is a place for understanding the anatomy of anxiety. So instead of excusing it, justifying it, you can seek God's forgiveness and true transformation is possible, right? There's a line between godly concern. I'm not talking about that, right? That's my, my nuance. There is such a thing as godly concern. And godly concern is godly because it draws you where? It draws you to God. 
you are more apt to pray, to be vigilant, to, be, uh, to take every concern to the Lord, right? That's always a good thing. But if your godly concern draws you away from God, it's no longer godly concern, it is the anxiety that we learn, learn about in, in this passage. In fact, when we look at this passage, we see really three facets of sinful anxiety. This is an anxiety rooted in fear, is an anxiety rooted in the future, and is an anxiety rooted in a lack of faith. Now, this is my strategy. I'm going to do a two-parter here, okay? Next week, we're going to do a proper exposition of this passage and talk about the cure for anxiety. I already have the titles, The Answer to Anxiety. But today, we're going to talk about the anatomy of anxiety, I want to just set the record clear where you can understand it, understand its pathology as informed by Scripture so that you know that it's wrong because you won't change unless you're convinced that it's wrong. Agreed? If you don't believe anxiety is a sin, then it'll be tolerated, it'll be excused, but it'll never be mortified or exterminated in your life. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the anatomy of anxiety so that you are convinced that this is an area of your life it must change, okay? Anxiety is rooted in fear, rooted in the future, and rooted in a lack of faith. So the first part, anxiety is rooted in fear. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So this is a command, right? Do not be anxious. The grammar of command suggests that they need to stop being anxious and this word for, for anxious, they had a clear understanding of it. It, it was linked to insomnia. Uh, one rabbi said about this word that anxiety brings old age too soon. All right, that's true, isn't it? So they are to stop being anxious. They are to stop worrying. And what is occasioning this? Well, Jesus just said in Luke 12, 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Their anxiety was tempting them not to be generous. Their anxiety was tempting them not to obey the clear command of Scripture. It was leading them away from God, leading them away from generosity, leading them to seek comfort and faith in their wealth instead of the living God. Now, he is going to build in this passage towards verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Right? So instead of seeking his kingdom, they are seeking something else, and this is triggered by anxious thoughts. Now, I have noticed that one of the primary reasons why children disobey is fear. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes it's not rebellion. I remember one of our children, we would drop off at the nursery, and this child would plant themselves at the door brace themselves, I'm being gender neutral here to conceal the identity of the child, and would scream and howl because they did not want to be left in the nursery because there was a fear that we would never come back to get them. Right? When you are afraid, you will do whatever you can to stop the realization of that fear. And this is a common temptation. Consider Abraham, okay? Abraham is the father of faith. He was told by God that you will sire a great nation, 
All the nations will be blessed through your natural-born child, and that natural-born child will come through your wife, Sarah. Now, he moves to the realm of Abimelech, and when he does, he kind of looks at his surroundings, realizes that he's married to a beautiful woman, and so he tells Sarah and tells everybody else, she's my sister. And so when Abimelech is about to take Sarah as his wife, and he realizes in the dream that God will curse him for it, Abimelech says, Abraham, why didn't you tell me? And he said in Genesis 20, verse 11, Abraham says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Notice his fear led him to lie and deceive. Remember when Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai? He's there for a long period of time, so long, in fact, that everyone at the base of the mountain goes to Aaron and says, what happened to this Moses fellow? Give us something that we can worship, something tangible that we can see and worship. And so he threw jewelry into the fire and out came a golden calf. Moses comes down, expresses his displeasure, and this is how Aaron excuses himself. Exodus 32:22. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. Moses, listen, they were going to kill me unless I did something. Right? Notice what is driving him to sin? It's his fear. And in this case, Jesus anticipates the reason why these people are not going to obey this call to generosity is because of their fear. He says in verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus knows that by by them being generous and giving to the kingdom, their hearts will be in the kingdom. Otherwise, there will be temptation to invest in this world and not trust God. This is really a call to faith, isn't it? And yet their fear will keep them from it. So what exactly were they afraid of? Well, in verse 22, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Right? The concern is what you will eat. Will there be enough food to eat? Have you ever wondered that in your life, by the way? I never have. In that day and age, a locust horde, crop disease, drought, famine, political instability, raiders coming, taking your crop. I mean, there, there was a palpable fear that should the worst happen, me and my family will starve. And there's even stories of, of such famine in the land that mothers actually ate their own children. Right? There is this fear. What will, we, what will we eat? Another fear would be, what will we put on? This is not 
fearing that you'll wear the same outfit twice in a row on Sunday morning. This is not about making sure that you look good and are fitting for the occasion or you have something to wear to, let's say, a formal wedding. This is like, well, you have clothing to keep you warm. See, clothing was a, a commodity during that time. And, and if you ran low on finances, you might have to give it up. Now, there were some regulations in Exodus twenty two twenty six. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it before the sun goes down. But there's a real possibility that you could lose your shirt. Right? That's where it comes from. So if you don't have enough food, if you don't have enough clothing, right, you will suffer. So ultimately, there's anxiety and stress of if this doesn't happen, I may suffer. You're not suffering now. That's future. We'll talk more about that later. But these are understandable fears. Now, we live in a day and age where anxiety is at an all-time high. In 1980, 4% of Americans claimed they were suffering from an anxiety disorder. That's 4% 1980. Current research says that 19% of Americans currently suffer from an anxiety disorder. 4% to 19%. 31% of Americans say they've had an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. Now, why is this the case? Maybe you could say that the stigma of anxiety disorders has gone down, and that's why more people are self-reporting, but I don't think that's the only reason why. You consider young people and what they're afraid of. They're afraid of school shootings. They're afraid of global warming. Yeah, they're afraid of loneliness. And in the 24-hour news cycle, in social media where you can always compare yourself and see what's going, going on, as you watch tweets and other things, there are understandable fears for safety because you see all the evil that is all over the world. I think there's another sense, too, where you have the fear of missing out. Now, we, have a, a, we live in a day and age where God doesn't design your existence for you. It's something that you must find for yourself. And should you choose wrongly, you might miss out on what is actually best for you. Like, consider the stress of romantic relationships from this perspective. If you want to meet someone special, you have to have a few preliminaries, right? One, you have to decide, am I a man or am I a woman? Okay, and once you decide that, you have to decide, am I gay or am I straight? So you have to decide that, and then you have to decide, do I actually want to get married or not get married? And then, should you get married, who should I marry? And then there's a fear of what would happen if this doesn't work out. And then there's a fear of what happens if this doesn't work out and we have kids. All of these additional choices, right, give a sense of anxiety that you might make the wrong one. And that's why many people are just kind of frozen in singleness because of fear and anxiety about the future. You see, we may have enough money to eat and wear clothing, but that hasn't stopped us from being, from being anxious. Being anxious because we fear that something will be taken from us that we love, or perhaps something will be withheld which we really want. 
And as a result, there is a fear of other people in this way. There is a belief that for you to get what you want, somebody has to deliver it for you. Consider a woman who is very concerned about the spiritual state of her kids. She earnestly believes that if she has the ability to homeschool her kids, to give them the right education, the right upbringing, the right amount of involvement in church, her kids will grow up and become Christians, right? That's a good goal. But then her husband comes home one day and says, they cut my hours and they cut my pay. For us to make it, you're going to have to work. That dream of homeschooling is now over. And what will be her temptation? To guilt, try to control, cajole him into doing what she wants. Because the key to her happiness is through her husband freeing up to stay home. Does that make sense? You look at, let's say, codependent relationships, right? My happiness is in your hands. You must be this for me. So there can be anxiety. There can be control. It's all about fear of not getting what you want. And the antidote to this is what? A fear of the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall fear the Lord. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. Instead of having a fear of missing out, right? You have a fear of disobeying the Lord. Who you fear will set the temperature in your life. Are you going to be governed by God? And the problem with anxiety is if it leads you to disobey God and not trust in God, well, it leads you to trust in something else. See, the problem with anxiety is it produces fear. It is fed by fear, not by faith. Secondly, anxiety is rooted in the future. Look at verse 22. Notice the future tense. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, right? What will you eat? What will you put on? These are future concerns. Anxiety anticipates what might happen, and you're nervous about it. When a mother goes to bed, she may wonder if her three-month-old will wake up in the morning or die of SIDS. A wife may be anxious when her husband's unusually home for late, home, coming home from, comes home from work unusually late. A husband might be really concerned if his wife tells him that she found a lump in her breast. A student might be very anxious about the big test they have to take. The results of the ACT. A man may be anxious about work when rumors are swirling about layoffs. A mother may be concerned about the development of her child. An American citizen might be anxious about the outcome of future elections. Right? When the future is unsettled, you can get anxious. And it's very difficult to enjoy life. One of my favorite pastimes is watching replays of great Jayhawk basketball games. It's the replay, I know. And my favorite is a 2008 national championship game when KU was down by nine with under two minutes left. They stormed back. Mario Chalmers hit the three-point shot. 
went into overtime and won the national championship. I watched that every year. <laughs> Sometimes twice if KU gets eliminated early. Now, I could enjoy that game because I know what's going to happen. But on the actual day of the game, I was in the fetal position. <laughs> and my comments gave Becky the strong hint that I want to grieve alone. And I remember telling myself out loud, we still had a great season. We're national runners up, right? I, I wasn't able to enjoy that because I didn't know what was going to happen, Right? When you don't know what's going to happen, and anxiety takes hold, it just sucks the joy out of life, doesn't it? Because you fear that your worst fears are going to be realized. It's what might happen to you. This could go wrong, and this could go wrong, and this could go wrong. Oh, we're going to suffer. But what anxiety forgets is who's actually in control. In Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. That was given to the people of Israel who were in exile. Worst thing that can happen, right? Foreign invaders come in, kill a third of your population, leave a third behind, and then take a third to a foreign country. You are to live there, and they think it's over, it's ruined, this project of Israel is all done. But God says, I've declared the end from the beginning. He will work it out for good. I mean, what was the worst event in human history? Worse than the Holocaust. Worse than the pogroms. It was a martyrdom of Jesus Christ, the only innocent man who ever lived, right? And remember how God used that for good? Whatever is the worst that can happen in your imagination, if it happens, it is in the decree of God that it will be used for good. You may not know the future, but you know somebody who does, and that person who knows the future loves you. The person who decrees the future has decreed it for your good. See, it's future in nature, but ultimately it's a, it's a lack of faith, isn't it? Anxiety is rooted in a lack of faith. Look at Luke 12, 28. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, their anxiety was a result of their little faith. In fact, when you look how this term little faith is used in Matthew, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Remember when the, the disciples are in the middle of the lake while Jesus is sleeping and the huge storm kind of swells and they're, they're terrified, believing that they're going to die. Jesus wakes up, rebukes the wind. But before he does that, he says in, Luke, sorry, in Matthew 8, 26, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Remember when Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter gets up, gets out of the boat. He starts walking on the water. Then he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he sinks, and he's terrified. Well, in Matthew 14, 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, 
Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I can just imagine Peter saying, well, I had more faith than the people in the boat, but, you know, that's another sermon. Matthew 16, 7, the disciples panicked because they weren't sure if they'd have enough food. Jesus was aware of this and said in 17, 8, or 16, 8 of Matthew, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And then he reminds them of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. They had little faith. You see, when people are anxious, they're not trusting in God. They are trusting in something else. Jesus says in Luke 12, 29 through 30, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Now, when he says nations, that's another term for the Gentiles, the unbelievers, right? They have a similar human condition where they would be anxious about their harvest, anxious about a sea voyage, anxious to find love. And this is what they would do. They had a a religious system where you can bribe the gods into giving you what you wanted. If you're concerned that there was no rain, you bribe the sky god, Zeus or Baal, depending on where you lived. You gave something to Baal, and Baal would give rain in return. And so there's this understanding that you could actually manipulate the gods into giving you what you want. And that's one of the reasons why idols are so appealing, because idols offer you the promise of some sort of control. Where you can't control God. Did you know that? You can't mandate him. You can't make demands out of him. You can't test him. He doesn't fall for any of that. God does what he wants. He's obligated to his promise. And so they would turn to other gods that gave them a sense of control. And Habakkuk explains the folly of this in 2, 18 through 19. says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it. People know this, and yet they go to idols anyway. Because they believe that this God, little g, will give me what I want, and I can control this God. So when people are anxious, they often turn into practical atheists, don't they? Have you ever noticed that people who are extremely anxious are also very controlling? When people are very anxious, they get very controlling. They're not going to God in prayer. They're not asking his will to be done. They're going to other people and trying to manipulate other people and relationships in their lives to facilitate what they want. It's people idolatry. If you're afraid that your children might fall away from the Lord, you'll do everything you can to give them the right education the right upbringing. Make sure they have the right Bible verses implanted in their hearts. You want to make sure they go to the right university, get the right kind of job, marry the right kind of person, and to get the right kind of person to have to date in the right way, right? And, and so they're going to be almost a smothering there. 
its control. If you're concerned that cancer runs in the family and you're anxious about that, if I get the right kind of diet, eat the right kind of food, the right amount of exercise, and if I do all these things, I won't get cancer. If you're concerned about your retirement, if I make the right investments, have the right kind of job, and do everything right, then I will get what I want. Where's God in that picture? Another way is to forget about your worries, right? Is to numb yourself to it. It might be through alcohol or obsessive video game playing, losing yourself in fiction. You pretend the problem is not there. Another way is to kind of play the prophet. You analyze the situation over and over and over again to try to talk yourself into some comfort. So instead of going to the scriptures, right, you might go to your budget. You might go to your savings account. Instead of going to uh, the scriptures, you imagine how the scenario would play out in your mind as you're trying to get to some sleep. And when you think, okay, that's going to happen, then you can drift off until the thought comes again. You play the prophet. But the solution to anxiety is to really remember who knows the most and who loves you most. And who's in control? Paul says in Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And seriously, what is the worst that can happen to you? You probably know the answer to that question. What is it? If this happens to me, my child dies, if I don't get that job, if I don't get into that school, my spouse gets cancer. If Pastor Dave takes another church, I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? Right? What is the worst that can happen? And if it did happen, does that change the fact that God is good? And that in his goodness, he allowed that to happen? And that he's going to use that for good? You see, if it really is the worst that can happen, if it really is that, then God wouldn't allow that to happen. But if God does allow that to happen, there's a reason for it. And ultimately, it's a test. Will you still trust me through this, right? Remember the book of Job? Your ladies heard a sermon on that. What's the worst that can happen? Well, the worst that can happen is that you fall away from the Lord. That's the worst that can happen. When you fear about, I might lose my spouse, might lose my child, might lose my job, the worst that can happen is that you won't honor the Lord in this trial. And so that's the problem with anxiety, is anxiety puts everything and all values on this earth and this world, and you cling to it tightly. You're not releasing it and allowing God to minister to you. And so when you look at what's the problem with anxiety, is ultimately a lack of faith, is telling God, I don't trust you with this area of my life. I don't think you're trustworthy. I fear for the future because you're in charge of it. And to get what I want, I'm going to look to these other people and these other gods to accomplish it. Now, I know that's kind of heavy. 
But here's the deal. If you're going to be free from anxiety, if you're going to accept the answer to anxiety, you have to be convinced it's a sin. Yes, sometimes it's godly concern, but let's just be honest, that's a small fraction of your worry. The reason why God has this for you is because he loves you and wants you to liberate you from the tyranny of anxiety. He wants to be Lord of your life. See, God can't forgive excuses, right? If you try to justify yourself, you'll never be justified. But the good news is, God can and he does forgive sin. And when people no longer try to justify themselves and they go to the Lord Jesus, he will justify them and make them innocent before the Lord. But it begins with confession. It begins with ownership. It begins with saying, Lord, I need help in this area. Will you change me? Will you transform me? Will you help me to know how I can trust you in these circumstances? Okay, when you have that thought, come back next week and I'll tell you what to do. All right, let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and we are thankful for the clear teaching on anxiety. And Lord, I know that there are times and seasons where it is stronger than others. And for those who are not going through a season of stress and anxiety, I pray that they will deposit this so that it will bless them at some future time and also help them to help others who are in that season. And for others who are in that season of anxiety, I pray that they'll see it for what it is, that they won't hold on to it stubbornly, they'll relinquish it and confess it and ask for your assistance in dealing with it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.